If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jen McQueen. Spring is here. The days are getting longer, and so are the Prime Minister's excuses. Here's oh, he said it, he said it. Thompson. He's a cheeky one. I don't know where he gets it from. He's a cheeky one. Uh, good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Hamilton today. Uh, Michael Stipe, REM, number 152. 152 on Rolling Stone's top 200 singers of all time. Where is the Celine Dion? Cry the Canadians. Uh, got a uh, lot going on today. Well, really not. You know, Will and I were talking about this. There's not a lot of A headline news, but there's a ton of B stuff. <laughs> So, I don't know. Is that interesting or this is the same old crap over and over again? Uh, we will wade through it and uh, try to figure out what is uh, going on. Um, you know, the, the stuff continues on in Ottawa in regard to uh, uh, election interference by the Chinese Communist Party over the last two elections. That's continuing. It's going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. It'll be fascinating because U.S. President Joe Biden arrives uh, in Ottawa for a sleepover. Uh, with the prime minister coming up tomorrow. So obviously that will be a part of it uh, as it goes on. Um, most of the time, this would be a, a, a distraction, but uh, this will probably just throw more logs on the fire because obviously uh, when they were floating balloons down through Canada into Montana, that was clearly a concern of those south of the border. So uh, lots of things to talk about with the uh, U.S. president arriving here tomorrow, and maybe that will give the uh, prime minister a bit of a break from the hassle he's been getting and the ongoing uh, which started as nothing and then it was racism and then all of a sudden uh, you know yeah okay you can call the chief of staff to to testify so it's amazing how this whole thing has just spun around and spun is the key word here uh, but yeah we're keeping our eye on that and, um, and, and of course as these stories progress we'll keep you up to date I guess the the news forthcoming for tomorrow is that there is a budget tomorrow this being the provincial budget the ontario budget uh you know again not sure what's going on there we'll find out more um they're 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 pretty tight-lipped about the whole thing here's what global news is colin DeMello uh knows as far as a, a little budget preview of what may come tomorrow Teachers from OSSTF, ETHO, representing high school, elementary, and Catholic school teachers, they're all in active bargaining with the Ford government. They haven't been without a contract since August. And they're looking to put a bit of pressure on the government here because they were under Bill 124, subjected to 1% per year for three years. So they're looking for a raise. Nurses, at the same time, are not only looking for a raise now, but they're looking to kind of make up for what they lost during the pandemic. And so those are massive pressures on the government. So it's going to be fascinating to see uh, what happens tomorrow and uh, and how all of this uh, pans out. You know, I don't think there's going to be any... Um I don't think there's going to be any lightning rods here. I don't think there's going to be anything that uh, that wasn't predictable, but we'll see. All right, on all of that, uh, Doug Ford, the premier today, uh, talking about the cost of living and and what he's hearing, obviously. And at the end of the day, if you create jobs, that's how people can get by. 
We can't tell you about the budget until tomorrow, and we'll always make sure we take care of the most vulnerable people. But do you know how to take care of the most vulnerable people that are of healthy mind, healthy body? You give them a great paying job. Give them their independence. And right now, it's the employees market out there. There's 380,000 unfilled jobs right now here in Ontario. We need more people here to fill those jobs and uh, just keep moving forward. Uh, and more on the budget and how he feels there's still more efficiencies to be had at every single level of government, including his own. Easiest thing is to just raise taxes. That's unacceptable. Drive efficiencies throughout the system. There's not one level of government that someone can convince me there's not waste, including the province, the federal government, and municipal governments. We have to start driving efficiencies, thinking outside the box, and doing things differently. Because I can tell you one thing, these hardworking people here and around the province, they get a paycheck, and they see the government gouging them on taxes, then they go buy something, more taxes, and then they're paying property taxes. They're fed up. They're they're done. They're absolutely done. They work their backs off, you know, up to 60 hours a week. And then they put in overtime and the government's gouging them. All right, Doug Ford on uh, what may or may not be appearing uh, predictions at this point, really crystal ball stuff as to what's going to happen with the provincial budget tomorrow. Obviously, we'll uh, keep you abreast of that as it develops tomorrow. Uh, all right, coming up on the show today, and, you know, we've talked about this, especially with Lorraine Sommerfeld, many times uh, in regard to car theft. But at what point does it have to get before, I don't know, something's done? There has to be a way in the world that we live in in order to stop people from taking your car. And I think it's just got to the point where the manufacturers and the insurance companies have just got this all baked into the price. And uh, at the end of the day, they're going to get stolen and let them take them. Is that the attitude? I'm not sure, but uh, it, it just seems that in this day and age, we should be able to do something a little bit more efficiently than what we're doing when it comes to car theft. Uh, speaking of cars... Uh, NASCAR and F1. Uh, many are following the Netflix special on F1, uh, Drive to Survive. Uh, I certainly am. I'm a motorhead. Uh, Todd Lewis, who, of course, uh, used, we used to work together many years ago at Y95. And then Todd branched out and started doing racing stuff. And I've envied, and I've envied the guy ever since. And all kinds of stuff. The, uh, open wheel, stock cars, what have you, uh, sports cars. And, and, uh, and we always used to have this debate about F1 and NASCAR. And I think, he may have some ground here. We're going to have that discussion coming up a little later on. Oh, yeah. And su uh, speaking of supply chains, ours is open now, including the Bay and the Welland Canal. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. We have had Lorraine Sommerfeld on this show talking about the topic we're just about to talk to uh, talk about a bazillion times. Uh, and uh, But I got a different angle on it this time. And I'm sure she can't provide me for, uh, an answer, but I'm going to uh, complain and whine about it anyway. Uh, Lorraine, of course, Colin. Uh, with driving.ca and the Hamilton Spectator and actually has a podcast on the driving.ca website that talks about what you can do to stop your car from being stolen. But my point is, enough of what the hell I can do, what are these people doing who I spend a bazillion dollars to buy a car off of every so many years? What are they doing to stop people from stealing their products? Lorraine Sommerfeld uh, with us now. Lorraine, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. 
I'm good, and I'm agreeing with you, which is scaring me. (laughs) (laughs) I know you mean that with love in the heart, Uh, and I appreciate that. Uh, So (laughs) that's funny. So anyway, we've talked about this a million times. We we were talking the last time, and you were we were talking about the old club, which goes on the steering wheel. If they're not going to take yours, they'll go to someone else's, whatever. But again, you know, uh, uh, my car is 11 years old, so I haven't bought one in a while. But I know they're incredible incredibly expensive how come the people who we pay thousands we pay thousands and thousands of dollars with for a car aren't doing more to stop these damn things from being stolen at what point at what point do we stop paying through the price of the car uh whether it's our insurance costs and let's be serious we do banking uh we've got all sorts of credit cards all kinds of crap that's that's electronic and what have you using technology why can't we fix this well, we could, but they like to sell more cars. Um, my broker told me about someone who's had three Land Rovers, Range Rovers replaced, the exact same vehicle, three. So for the manufacturer, they just sold three of those instead of one. So is that but, what this is, Lorraine? Is that yeah. the price is now baked in? The insurance company gets their cut. The auto company gets their cut. Uh, you know, the well, thefts are going to incur anyway. So everybody's happy except the customer. Let me give you something that's going to enrage you even more. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> they can absolutely have tracers on that car. They already do. They have stuff in there, anti-theft stuff and tracking devices and everything else, but they want you to pay for it. And you probably read the headline a couple weeks ago about VW, um, Mm. Illinois, and it was taken out out of the woman's driveway and they refused and her kid was in the back seat. So it was stolen with a kid in the back seat. And so the sheriff, because they have sheriffs down there, it's so cool, um, they called VW and said, where's this car? And they go, she didn't pay for the subscription, so we can't tell you. Wow. Well, now VW has said they're giving everybody five years free on this. But that word subscription, this is what's going to piss you off the most. They want you to pay every year to have access to the thing that's already in your car. They're doing it in, I believe, Vietnam with heated steering wheels on BMWs. Everything in your car in about five years, they're going to want you to pay for every year. So what you consider a feature of the trim level you bought, they want you to start paying for it. The VinFast, it's an electric vehicle company, you lease the batteries from them. You can't buy the, oh, buy the car and lease man. the batteries. Oh, man. Yeah. So, see, I'm glad you called me today. Yeah, exactly. You know, I knew there was nothing. I knew we were not going to solve the world's uh, problems right here, Lorraine, this afternoon in seven minutes. So uh, we've talked about this before. And, you know, what about bringing back the common key? And, you know, even even my wife whines, you know, well, I like the fob because I can, you know, it's like it doesn't matter if it gets stole out of your driveway or whatever. But is there not a way we can use the combination of two? Is that too much? Is there a simpler way to do this? Again, even with the tag thing you're talking about, Lorraine, that's after the fact. How about stopping them from even stealing the damn thing in the first place? Well, if you go back to in the podcast that you talked about, I just did that last week, the week before with the head of security for Ikite, which they are trying to stop this because when your vehicle's stolen, it's not just that your car's ripped off. It's being used for trafficking, for drugs, for um, terrorism. And Canada is a global, global source of cars because our borders are like sieves. So the feds, the Port of Montreal is a freaking joke. Yeah. The cars are up and out and gone, and they get bonuses when there's Ontario tags on these cars <laughs> over in different African countries and all over the place, all over the world. So Canada is looked at as the sucker patsy um, because, and around here, it's because of the Port of Montreal, uh, Quebec and Ontario are the two worst places because they're gone in a few hours. 
and there's a lot of rich people around here. And Quebec um, insurance companies started telling people they have to put a tag system, TAG is the brand name, yeah. on it so they can you know, bring the, the rates down. And now Aviva is going to be telling some of the people listening to this, if you have Aviva and a chronically stolen vehicle, they're going to give you this tag system, which is about 500 bucks for free to have mm. in your car. But manufacturers can absolutely solve this. They should be, and it is wrong that they're not. But even what you're talking about, Lorraine, is, you know, then it takes uh, law enforcement or investigators or insurance investigators to follow up, trace the tag. Lord knows what happens when that's encounter, when that encounter happens. Is there any, isn't there not anything we can do to stop them from getting into cars so quickly? Or is it if you give somebody uh, 20 minutes, they're going to start your car and drive it away? You need an average of three to five minutes, not 20. Yeah. And I was being generous. I, know. I was thinking the old days underneath the dash with a wire, you know. The apprentices. Yeah, the apprentices need 20 minutes. But yeah. The main dudes don't. But they, whatever is invented is hacked before it's invented. Like yeah. every other single yeah. thing is the bad guys are way better than the, I'm putting good guys in quotes here. And what you're hoping is if, these systems are installed on these cars and they know they are, you're trying to make them go steal someone else's vehicle. Right. Yeah. And the, the other thing is if Canada got serious about this on all fronts, all at once, lock down the vehicles, people have to be more aware of what they're doing with their vehicles. Manufacturers should step in and be protecting the vehicles and close the damn borders off. That's how you start to solve the problem. One of these, well, the borders would go a long way, but no, yeah, it's, yeah. it's everything. But, so yeah, uh, let me ask you this. <laughs> back in the old days with, when they had keys, when we had keys, yeah. how long would it take to steal a car? Oh, that's in Probably the same amount of time. Actually, yeah. Pardon yeah, me? Yeah, well, you have to, I wrote a novel, and you have to break into, get into the car, which remember with a uh, yeah. wire coat hanger? Yeah. Totally doable. Um, and then pull the wires down and then cross them. And so that, that took a little more time. The people that were really good at it could do it in a few minutes. It took longer to get into the car, but yeah. you know, now it's so easy. They don't put a mark on the car and they pull down your, there's like a ODSB port where your mechanic can yeah. decide what's wrong with your car. They plug into that and make themselves new key fobs in your driveway. So your key fob is no longer attached to your car. There's no signal. So they don't need, you know, the Faraday cages, put your keys in yeah. the freezer and all that crap. They don't even need your key anymore. They make their own. And so when they hand this over to whoever bought it, they give them two lovely key fobs to go with it. Look at that. Just like the yeah. dealership. Lorraine Summerfelt yeah. with us, columnist with driving.ca and the Hamilton Spectator. Uh, check out the driving.ca podcast on all of this to uh, at least help yourself some way. Lorraine, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Talk to you, you too, Scott. Bye. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Way back in the day when Todd Lewis and I both worked at Y95, um, uh, we're both motorheads, both race fans, but he was more of an open-wheel guy. I was more of a stock car guy, and we used to have these great debates about, you know, which was better. And now um, I'm having him back on the air to tell him that I have seen the light. Uh, he is the host of Rec Culture TV, NASCAR announcer, TSN Pinty series and whatever else he's got going on todd lewis uh motorsports announcer journal uh are you, i don't know if journalist i uh, sure why not uh tv host whatever sure. he's with us now todd thanks for the time i hope you're doing well i am doing well it's nice to talk to you friend it's been a, a long time don't forget the racing it out podcast is the other one so, yeah that's it okay 
There you go. All right. So uh, let's let's get that right off the top. How many fire suits are you wearing now? What uh, what what are you doing this year in racing? Uh, I will be back doing NASCAR again in Canada, the NASCAR Pinty series. Uh, you mentioned uh, Rev Culture, which is on Rev TV, which is my program, Racing It Out podcast, and uh, a few other assorted things. I'm the, the uh, house announcer for the Honda Indy Toronto, St. Petersburg Grand Prix, and some other events as well. So a little bit of everything with, to do with open wheel racing, with stock car racing, with sports car racing, and uh, just about every series from grassroots all the way up to the world uh, elite level. Good for you. This is so great to see. I'm so envious of you. Now, um, we we uh, we used to have talks uh, way back in the day about uh, stock cars versus open wheel and such. And, you know, I like the bump it in the bag and the colorful personalities and whatever. I can never understand why, y- you know, a, a car comes across and then 10 seconds later another. However, in comes this new Netflix show called uh, Drive to Survive. Is this... What has put F1, uh, and, and let's remember, F1's a worldwide sport. NASCAR's North America. So we're strictly talking about North America here. But it certainly now went from having no uh, races in the United States, the one in Montreal, of course, and now they're going to they're have three, I believe, this year. How do you explain the rise of this sport here? Miami, Vegas, and Austin in uh, the United States this year, in addition to the Canadian Grand Prix in Montreal, which is fantastic. The, the Netflix series arrived at exactly the perfect time when everyone was, was locked in their houses and trying to find new things to watch, and the Drive to Survive series arrived. And because of some tremendous access that was allowed by the, net, the, uh, the teams to the Netflix creators, really gave a wonderful inside look at the sport, how dramatic it is, how cutthroat it is at times, how uh, expletive-laden some of the radio transmissions are, but it's a really fun series as well. Now, ratings and attention have gone up significantly in the United States. It's it's part of the plan by the owners of F1, which is Liberty Media, to increase the popularity in the United States, because that's where so many companies are based, and there's access to so many millions of dollars in terms of sponsorship, and that's that's essential to have race series grow. And F1 has grown significantly, as mentioned, now with three events here. But for instance, the, the race last weekend that, uh, that took place in Jeddah aired at a pretty good yeah. time in the afternoon on Sunday in the United States and mm. got just over a million viewers in the U.S. The NASCAR race from Atlanta got 3.4 million viewers in the United States. So there's there's kind of where you are. F1 is growing, absolutely, but it's still not the same kind of even television-sized audience that NASCAR is in the United States. But the good news is racing as a whole is growing and in a, in a pretty good place right now in terms of fitting attention from, from fans and from partners and from television and streaming service. And, you know, Todd, you bring up a very valuable point. It's like this isn't one against the other. There's room for everybody here. I, I would hope that the way most people approach it, there are some that like think, oh, I'm a, I'm an open wheel guy. <laughs> if you're joking about it at the beginning, I'm a, I, I'm an open wheel guy or I'm a, a NASCAR guy or I'm a sports car guy. I was at the, the 12 hours of Sebring over the, the weekend. And in the last 10 minutes, the three leaders crashed and took each other out and somebody else, well, it was, it's, that's, that's the, uh, if, if you want action, there's lots of that there too. So mm. it's, it's great that. You can be a fan of more than one kind. I am. I know you are too. Yeah. But it, you don't have to restrict yourself to one kind of motorsport. It's a lot of fun. 
So how is NASCAR looking at this? Because you know me, man. I've been a NASCAR fan since I was a kid. I, I went to the Grand Prix back in the, the early mid-70s when it was still held at uh, Mossport. So I remember it. And again, I mean, it's great to watch everything. But I preferred that style of racing. But to me, it has become very predictable, very bland. And as I've started watching more F1, they're not ta- talking about how great the racing is or how the race has been manipulated. They're talking about the battles that are going on to win the race. Where do you think, uh, how do you think NASCAR is viewing this, this rise? I think NASCAR has taken some pretty dramatic steps and will take more once they release the schedule for 2024. This year, for in the summer, for instance, NASCAR is going to run their first street race in the Cup Series in Chicago yeah. on the uh, uh, July 1st, 2nd weekend, which I'm really anxious to see, A, how good the racing is because the course looks really tight, but the event, the spectacle is going to be unique for NASCAR because right now they go to tracks which are often well outside the big city, but this one, the race is coming right into the big city and it is kind of a toe in the water and an experiment, but I think it's going to be very successful. For for instance, they went back to the Coliseum in LA for the, for the clash before they kicked off their season again this year. Crowd was down, but still it was a, it was a good event. Uh, except for the second half of the, the race where they couldn't stop running into each other. But it, it's trying something new. I think there, there are more road courses in the last couple of years. I think there's going to be changes to the schedule coming up for NASCAR in the United States. Do they make does a series as NASCAR, whether it be Xfinity or the trucks return to Canada? Yeah, I can see that happening at some point. I'm not sure if it's going to be next year, um, but I can see it happening. And in the meantime, the, the NASCAR Pinting series is growing great guns in in Canada. And I think that series, which I watch faithfully with you guys, and and even the truck series, to me, is, is just more exciting to watch than it is uh, uh, the Cup series. Uh, what do you see as far as, um, you, you know, you're talking about street courses. I mean, uh, you know, NASCAR went on a binge there and built all these mile and a halfs with the suites and whatever. Is that the future? Is the future yeah. more street courses as we're seeing both in F1 and Indy and what have you? I, I think they're understanding that you have to be a little more accessible to people as opposed to expecting, always expecting the crowd to come to you. You sometimes have to understand that it, it's in your best interest to hold a street race in a, in an enormous city like Chicago downtown. And it is going to be right downtown in the city. Sure. You're always going to have people that come to, that come to Daytona and come to other classic tracks on, on the NASCAR schedule. Sure. But they are kind of trying to get away from the 1.5 milers and they're trying to improve the racing on those tracks as well by trying different packages and, and introducing new elements. So uh, they, they understand that you have to have a good product and you have to present that product honestly, I think too, on television. And that's, that's where the coverage needs to uh, needs to be better in some cases. We remember when these families were all loving of each other. Todd, will we see the day? Will we get all kinds of drivers racing in the Indy 500 again? Uh, I don't know how soon that's going to happen because of the limitation of engine leases that are available from Chevrolet and Honda. But Kyle Larson has said he's going to run it in 2024. It's not going to be this year, but he's going to run it in 2024 in a McLaren car. So maybe that'll be the start of something that we have more drivers from different disciplines coming in and running 
uh, running the Indy 500. And Kyle's going to run the double that day. He's going to run the NASCAR race as well. There you go. All right. Todd Lewis with his host of Rec Culture TV, NASCAR Pinty Series on TSN, scouting the refs and racing it uh, out podcast as well. Todd, thanks so much for the time. We'll chat again and uh, happy racing. Thanks, buddy. We'll talk to you soon. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, a sure sign of spring. I know the clock's changing and the actual first day of spring, but also when the ships start moving, the supply chain through this area opens up, the Welling Canal, uh, the bay, all of that, a key link in the North American supply chain has reopened uh, following a three-month closure for maintenance. Uh, Welling Canal clo- uh, connects Lake Ontario and Lake Erie, forms a key section of the St. Lawrence Seaway and the Great Lakes Waterway. The Quebec section, the St. Lawrence, was closed December 31, well, was shut down Jan 9. To talk more about all of this, Terrence Bowles with us, President and CEO of the St. Lawrence Seaway Management Corporation and with us now. Terrence, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, hello, Scott. Uh, nice talking to you today. Yeah, sure. So, it's a great day. Seaway's starting up, so I think we're all uh, optimistic for the uh, coming season, so a good so, start. So tell all of us that are new to this game or don't know much about it, why do do they close it down? Is it just simply the weather? Is it the winter? Is it ice, snow, all of that that closes this down for uh, the period through the winter months? Yeah, well, there's there's two reasons. <laughs> you know, the, the the first one, definitely the ice, as you know, mainly yeah. you know, on the Great, the Great Lakes uh, uh, pretty well freezes up. This year is, a, is, is one of the odd years where uh, there wasn't that much ice, but... Uh, Usually that's one of the issues. The second one, of course, is what you mentioned a little earlier. Uh, we have to uh, do work on our infrastructure. You can imagine, uh, you know, we have probably some 20 billion worth of infrastructure in there. So you got to get in and, uh, and, and, and don't forget the Welland Canal is almost 90 years old. And uh, we're talking about 65 years old in the uh, Quebec uh, section. So a lot of work to be done to, to keep, uh, keep the seaway in good shape. So that's what we do. It's amazing that way back when they had the vision to do what they're doing, and it still continues today. Oh, yeah. And, I, and you know, the engineering that went into it, when you think about it. Yeah. Canal, 1932, you know, and you look at the the, uh, the skill that they showed and, the, you know, the, the, the excellent design that's lasted till today. It's uh, it's it's remarkable, really remarkable. I think it was recognized as, as, as you know, one of the, uh, prime prime uh, engineering feats of the of the 20th century. So pretty pretty uh, impressive uh, structures. So when is this a pretty basic structure? Meaning the canal itself is it, it, it? What sort of maintenance needs to be done on an annual basis to to keep this thing going? Like you said, it was built yeah. an awfully long time ago. Can you see when it will need a refurb of some sort? Well, you know what we do. Uh, you know what we do is we inspect every piece of the seaway uh, uh, over a three-year period. So every three every three years, we've inspected every piece of equipment on that mm-hmm. on the seaway, and of course they get rated as to uh, what work they need, and so we keep up with it, right? So this is what this is what's extended the life of uh, of all of this equipment, and and of course some of it we've replaced with brand new equipment. So really, it's uh, it's, uh, it's 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 in remarkable shape there for uh, for its age. Uh, it's in good shape. We we end up with something like ninety nine point five percent availability. So to get that kind of an availability, you can imagine 
uh, has to be in, in in very good condition. So that's uh, that's what we do. And what do we repair? Obviously, you have these huge gates, right, which are yeah, so maybe eighty feet high and uh, four feet wide. Uh, you know that basically keep the water in uh, in our various locks. You've got valves, these huge valves, bridges. You know, I, I, I think we have something like twenty five bridges on the seaway. Mm. So these have to be uh, maintained and upgraded. The walls of the seaway, right? Cement walls. So you have to make sure they're in uh, in good condition. So it's uh, <laughs> it's a very very workload. Uh, obviously, uh, the service isn't going to be slowing down anytime soon. Um, I understand the first one of the first uh, ships coming through is going to Defasco. Yes, yes, yes. It's uh, it's on its way. I think I think they're anxious to get the uh, the iron ore pellets for their uh, for their furnaces. So that's being shipped up from uh, Quebec and uh, uh, on the uh, on an Algoma ship. That's uh, that uh, we were we were proud to see. Uh, being the first through the seaway. How long does it take one of these things to get from one end of the seaway to the other? Well, the entire distance would be something like, uh, let's say, five to six days through the, the entire system. Through the waters, through the lake, locks yeah. and such. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they will be, uh, yeah. they'll be out there regularly now because uh, the canal shipping lanes are open. Terrence Bowles with his president and CEO of the St. Lawrence Seaway Management Corporation. Terrence, fascinating stuff. Thanks for the time, and good luck with this year's season. Okay, Scott. Uh, I hope I hope we all have a successful season and uh, lots of ships going into Hamilton. Lots going on in Ottawa. All kinds of heat around the Prime Minister in regard to uh, election interference and uh, sort of stalling on all of that. And now uh, chatter of an inquiry brings uh, David Johnston into the picture. And all of a sudden, Katie Telford, the Chief of Staff, is testifying. Lots going on in around Ottawa. And, oh, my goodness, look who's knocking at the front door. It's U.S. President Joe Biden. He's coming for a, a sleepover tomorrow. What does this mean? Let's bring in Melissa Hosman, professor, Department of Political Science, Carleton University, and with us now. Melissa, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. I'm fine. Thanks. So the president is coming for a much-anticipated visit. Obviously, we've been, we've been waiting for this for a long time. Lots of distractions going on in Ottawa now with the the allegations of election interference and such. Is this a distraction? Is this an obstacle for the prime minister? Is this an opportunity to change the channel? The particular allegations about China or the visit? Uh, the allegations about China, will that interfere with the visit? I can't imagine it would. Um, we've had all sorts of allegations of interference in U.S. elections going back to 2016. Nothing new. <laughs> I know, but now that it is a common problem and something that's happening in Canada as well, will it be a common uh, issue on the agenda? It could be. It hasn't really been talked about much in terms of the stories I've read. So, no, I wouldn't think it's a major point. But, you know, what do I know? <laughs> what do you? Th what is uh, going to be on the agenda? We've certainly heard uh, border issues, uh, trade, lumber, that sort of thing. What do you think will be, or will this just be, since it is the first one, uh, just a, a big meet and greet? Well, it is and it isn't the first one. Again, I mean, these folks have talked. I know there have been virtual visits in 2021. I know that the prime minister and his wife and the president and his wife talked at the summit um, and 
June 2022 in L.A. So it's not like they haven't been in contact. And of course, you know, the House of Commons was out uh, until the end of 2021 almost. So basically the opportunities haven't been there. So I don't think we should read into this, you know, any great deal that Biden hasn't been able to get here until now. Uh, So what do you think is the primary issues that they will be chatting about? Right. Well, we've heard about supply chain issues and one that I'm particularly interested in, given that I do women's policy, is that baby formula is now the largest dairy export into Canada from the U.S. And both countries have been experiencing shortages. And we know that basically a break or surge protection was struck in the USMCA, and one of the things that resulted was a lack of baby formula imports into the U.S. from Canada, in fact, none in the last year, so that we saw enormous shortages and problems. We know that other issues are supply chain issues. We haven't gotten specifics on that. We know about Buy American um, provisions in, sorry, the Inflation Reduction Act, However, as my American colleague Scotty Greenwood also noted, they don't apply to government procurement at the national or state level or or for the military. So the application is small. Um, we know that Biden is also um, interested in talking about Haiti. I have no doubt that China's on the agenda, especially given its recent, you know, balloon rides or spy balloons. In apparently it is apparently it is it is on the agenda they will be oh, talking yeah. about this the prime so. minister has, has said that that is on the agenda yes yes i would think so and modernization of norad is another one that they're talking about one that would be great if they talked about is that you know in the u.s after the dobbs decision by the supreme court in june 2022 striking down roe v wade we know the prime minister and his health minister said you know basically we could open up canada to uh, sexual and reproductive health, specifically abortion, um, for Americans who can't procure one at home. And that would be great if that were on the agenda. I have no knowledge that it is, but it would be nice. <laughs> uh, what about border issues and the issue going around Roxham Road? We're hearing, you know, yearly we're up around four, uh, 40,000 immigrants coming in that way illegally and such. How big a concern do you think that is? Oh, I think those are concerns. And of course, there are concerns legislatively, too. It's not just for the executive. You know, people have to run on elections around these issues. And so people, obviously, who represent Quebec and all that are going to be concerned about it. And we know that Quebec has um, had its own immigration policy. So sure, that's a concern. It's, again, a lot of these issues are perennial issues that pop up Mm-hmm. Very reliably, softwood lumber, dairy, immigration, supply chain. So, really, again, it's it's a it's an important issue at the time, but also in the general framework of things, these issues crop up very regularly. What do you think is going to stand out after this visit? Once he leaves, what will we be talking about? What will we be talking about? Mm-hmm. Well, generally, what we hear publicly, um, another thing we know that's on the agenda is the the critical minerals issue and trying to enact safeguards around that. So, you know, we'll see what um, Biden says in Parliament. We'll see what the sort of outtakes are from that. We'll see what people think were the main issues discussed. But 
I'm sure we'll have to wait to hear in the coming weeks, too, in terms of concrete progress on any particular issue. Melissa Hosman with us, professor, Department of Political Science, Carleton University. The U.S. president arrives tomorrow for a two-day visit. Melissa, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, I'm going to tell you a quick little story. Uh, just, I remember talking to an epidemiologist just at the, the, just when this whole thing started, the whole uh, COVID-19 global pandemic thing started, like the first couple of months when we had no idea what the heck was going on. And I was talking to an epidemiologist and she was telling me how they could actually, and they did trace back the original source and how SARS started. And I remember her telling us the story and, and my reaction to it was, wow, that's incredible. And her reaction was, ain't science great? And it was amazing. And she said, one day we will find where this all originated. However, we are still searching. Let's bring in Dr. Isaac Bogosh, staff physician, general internal medicine, infectious diseases, associate professor, Department of Medicine, University of Toronto, and with us now. Isaac, thank you for your time. I hope you're well. Hey, nice to chat. Great to chat again. And uh, yeah, yes. Okay. Hope you're doing okay too. Yeah, things have settled down for you, Isaac. Where there was a time when you were on on TV, media, radio, whatever, every single day. It must be nice to at least have things settling down a bit for you. Oh yeah, it's uh, not complaining about that. It's absolutely fantastic. It was busy because you know you're doing juggling all that, but also you know there was no shortage of patients to see at that time as well and uh, other obligations too so glad things are settling down so are you surprised isaac that we haven't got to the source of this yet considering it was so easy or relatively easier with sars we obviously know there was some cleaning done and some cover up in there as well now we're hearing an animal known as a raccoon dog where are we in this search for the cause well for starters it took about three plus years for the uh, intermediate host uh, for SARS-1 to be found. And that was a, an animal called the civet. Um, and, you know, even where we, if we take a step back and look at where we're at now, I don't think we have conclusive answers. I think we have incremental data that helps us understand the origins of this virus. But I don't think that anyone could say with any degree of certainty that, you know, it was a laboratory leak or it was from the market. We just don't know. This new data point is helpful. There there were samples that were collected from the market way back in 2020. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, sadly, they're only becoming available now. Uh, they should have been made available years ago, but they're being made available now. They were placed on a, a global public repository uh, by Chinese scientists who are evaluating them. And other scientists uh, around the world saw them and, and downloaded them and started working on them as well. And then these, these, uh, this data was actually removed or not made available on the global repository. Uh, there's a lot of finger pointing as to why it's not available right now. We understand that perhaps it will be available for others soon. But in that, the international scientists that downloaded that data and started evaluating it noticed that there was some genetic material from the animal you talk about, the raccoon dog, and even other other animals as well uh, that was available. And this thought is that perhaps this is what we would call an intermediate host, meaning the virus probably emerged in a bat, made its way into one of these other animals. Perhaps those other animals were in the market. And again, the theory, and it's just a theory, is of course that it spilled over from those animals into humans and caused the pandemic. 
has has this site, has this area, has this situation been cleaned up so much that we will perhaps never know the exact origins of it? I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. I just I think there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty. Maybe there'll be more data that's available that we're that that we just aren't sure of yet or that's not publicly available yet. So there might be more emerging data that tips the scales one way or another. And maybe it won't. I, I really don't know. Here's what I do know. Regardless of what the origin is, if it was a laboratory leak, if it was from the market, regardless of what it is, we have to be prepared for the next one. And that means viruses that have a natural spillover from non-human animals into humans. That means accidental laboratory leak of viruses. That means the purposeful release of viruses. We have to have systems in place where we can detect these early, respond to these early, and make sure labs adhere to the highest biosafety standards globally so that we don't have to deal with this again. Uh, the fact that we can't find the source of that, how confident are you that those sorts of guidelines will be put in place? Well, the issue is they have to be global guidelines, and that's tricky. That's very tricky. We know yeah. that um, you know, if, if country X and Y adhere to the highest standards of, of care, but country you know, A and B don't, then we're, we're all in trouble, right? We know that once these viruses get into humans, we see how fast they can propagate. We know human mobility is, is uh, pretty impressive. In 2023, you can be on one side of the planet and end up on the other side of the planet in as little as 24 hours and, of course, bring viruses with you. We saw how quickly COVID-19 uh, emerged and spread globally only in a matter of months, and uh, we have to be prepared. So, you know, uh, these are just words, right? Biosafety, biosecurity, preparedness, early detection system. It's easy to say. It's actually a lot harder to do uh, because we have to think about what are who, who, who are the global players? You know, Canada, United States, Europe, sure, we can do a decent job at this. But what about low-income countries that might not have the capacity to do it? So this really involves, <clears throat> pardon me, a lot of support for lower-income countries to build capacity for early detection systems, build public health capacity, strengthen biosecurity and biosafety protocols for laboratories. Like, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Do do we need to find out the origins in order to protect us? Some have said, why do we need to know? We know enough. Well, let's just move on. Do do we have to to follow this up in order to be better prepared for the future? No, we don't. I think it would be helpful. I think it would be useful, but we don't. We already know that this is going to come from three places, a natural spillover event, and we know how and where that happens, a laboratory leak, and we know how and where that happens, or sadly, it's not nice to talk about, but a purposeful release, and we sort of know how and where that happens. So those are really the only three events that can happen. And we have to be prepared for all three, regardless of how COVID-19 originated. So you're not necessarily confident that we will ever find out the exact source. If we take a timestamp of where we're at right this second today, based on all the data that we have available, I would say no. But I'm totally open-minded that more data may become available that will maybe we will one day say, you know what? Wow, here's the smoking gun. All the evidence points towards this or all the evidence points towards that. That'd be wonderful. I think it would provide us with a lot of closure. But let's take a hypothetical situation. Let's say, okay, there's in a hypothetical world, we have overwhelming evidence that it was uh, from the market, from a spillover event, from a particular type of animal to humans. Okay, that stinks. But like, are we going to do anything differently now? No, we still have to 
combat the spillover of viruses from non-human animals to humans in markets and in other areas with environmental degradation where humans are uh, really encroaching on other animals' territories and, and coming into contact with other animals. We still have to ensure that labs that are working with viruses have the highest levels of biosafety and biosecurity to prevent these spillover events. We still have to know what are the high-consequence pathogens that people are working with to ensure that there's no nefarious business going on that could result in the purposeful or accidental release of these viruses. So regardless of what the origin is, we still have to be careful with for all three of those potential mechanisms where a virus can spill over into human populations. Unfortunately, we only got a few seconds left, but I have to ask you, what can host countries do to keep this from happening or the, their food chain free of contamination? Is this an easy fix or is this difficult? No, this is sustained effort, sustained funding, sustained support over yeah. time not just to high-income countries, but to low-income countries to bolster public health capacity and laboratory capacity. Dr. Isaac Bogosh with us, staff physician, general internal medicine, infectious diseases associate professor, University of Toronto. Isaac, great to speak with you again. Good luck. Be well. Be well. Nice to chat. Have a good one. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, nothing kind of makes you, well, either you don't listen, you look the other way, or it makes you cringe. Budget, uh uh-oh, that means things going up, more tax. What does it mean? Ontario's budget set to be tabled uh, tomorrow, and it's going to be fascinating to see because there are full coffers and lots of people waiting for their cut of it. Let's bring in Michael Veal, Professor of Economics, McMaster University, Academic Director of Statistics Canada, Research Data Centre, and with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, I am. Hope you are, too. So far, so good, Michael. Uh, we hear uh, the, the, the coffers are up. The, will, will we see purse strings being opened up tomorrow or, or the opposite? What are you expecting? Any, any looking at the crystal ball here? Oh, well, I doubt they'll be open wide. You have to remember that the province of Ontario still has a debt of something like $400 billion. And so they're going to be prudent. I don't think there's any reason for them to be excessive. They'll put some money into health care. Uh, they'll probably put some uh, money into uh, some sort of program that will will try to improve training. They just announced most of that already. Uh, so those are the sorts of things they're going to do. I would say mostly healthcare and a bit of a bit of other things. We've certainly heard lots of chat about affordability, interest rates, and such, and uh, and and obviously just what a tough time inflation it's been for Canadians uh, wherever they are to get by. How does the employment rate factor into this? Because normally when we head into tough tough times, or they start talking about a recession or whatever, we see unemployment rates uh, go up, but we still have uh, perhaps one of the most historically low rates, unemployment rates uh, in a while. How does that figure into all of this? Well, there are some people who are still are working who are still having a tough time because inflation's been so bad. Uh, yeah. But in general, you're right. I think the labor market's going quite well. I think that's one of the reasons we won't see a very broad-based assistance. Uh, the the Minister of Finance has said that there will be targeted assistance of some sort. He didn't specify, but we'll find out tomorrow. But I, I think, broadly speaking, the economy is going well for a good number of us. The trouble is, of course, it's not going well for all of us. Uh, build and attract jobs seems to be a theme that uh, some of the preview that we got today. Uh, how does that factor into all of this, especially in around housing? Well, sure. Of course, we, one of our issues is the housing crisis. And 
Uh, they'll probably try to do something on that. I doubt that'll be a big ticket item tomorrow because, uh, because I don't think they really have uh, that many levers. Uh, they'll do something in that direction, but probably not very much would be my, my guess. What do you think they will talk about building? What are they building? I mean, that's certainly been a theme that's that, that's been going on for the last uh, little while of this uh, premier that uh, we need to build infrastructure, we need to build homes, uh, hospitals and such. How much a part of all of that will be in the budget? I think the biggest probably we'll see will be on the healthcare side. Uh, they obviously are pushing uh, their view of what should happen with green belts. Uh, but I don't think those, they think of those items as ones they're going to be putting a lot of money in, uh, more permissions uh, for the private sector to take a bigger role. The premier was saying today, didn't give too many details, but saying that uh, you can't continue to tax your way out of this. Taxes are, are killing people. They're on you know the, the major issue or one of the major issues. Uh, how does he do all of this and he, he, he keep his promise of not raising taxes in any way? Well, the, as you said, I think that they're doing well now. If you recall, the, the government of Quebec just had a budget um, and they cut taxes some. Um, and mm. they're in roughly the same position as the province of Ontario. What's happened with inflation and with uh, low unemployment rates that you've mentioned, uh, revenues are up. Uh, revenues were up very strikingly in the, in the most recent quarter for the province of Ontario, an extra $9 billion. And so with those numbers higher, they have some more money. Uh, the question is, is will they keep their powder dry? And I think, largely speaking, they will. They will do something, but more or less, it's time to be a bit conservative. There are some potential headwinds. I was uh, optimistic uh, that there wasn't going to be a recession. But right now, uh, there are some banking issues, as you probably know, and there is there is some possible headwinds. I don't think they're going to be that serious, but there's uncertainty, and it's not the time, I think, uh, to go out too far on the spending limb. Uh, lots of contracts coming ready for negotiation after the 1% freeze, whether it's the teachers, nurses, whatever. How do you think you'll address that? Well, I, I think in the budget, we'll see very conservative numbers there because uh, to, to, one ex to some extent, they'll want to play their cards close to their vest. Uh, they won't promise a lot of money there because they, they, they know that there will be those demands. I do think that's potentially rocky. You make a really good point. I think that as we go into this budget uh, into these negotiations, uh, there could be some pressures on the budget from that as well. He, are you surprised he's been able to keep a lid on this so far? Uh, do you think it's going to blow? He's got to come up with some solutions here. Well, up until now, I, I think that the, the labor settlements that I've seen have been in line with the general view that inflation is going to fall. Uh, as long as that happens, it may not be uh, so serious. I think we may accommodate, we may catch up gradually over time uh, to, to the situation before the pandemic. All that is possible. But the, the point is, is that it's all a very uncertain time. You know, the economy has never come out of a pandemic before. We don't know exactly what's going to happen. And so I think they'll be pretty conservative tomorrow, but they will have some powder dry for these various eventualities. Michael Veal with us, Professor of Economics, McMaster University, Academic Dire uh, Director, Statistics Canada Research Data Centre. Michael, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Yes, you too. Thanks. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We certainly know uh, with the whole, all the allegations regarding and the CSIS leaks through uh, election interference in the Chinese Communist Party and such, uh, it had been blown off for a long period of time. Nope, nothing to see here. Then eventually the reports started stacking up uh, and such and calls for committees. The committees were formed. No, that's not good enough. We need a public inquiry. And then during the committees, um, the opposition tried tried to get the uh, chief of staff, Katie Telford, to testify. That wasn't going to happen. It was lost in a filibuster. Then all of a sudden, uh, the conservatives put forth a motion to create another opposition committee, which would see her testify. And then soon after, the NDP weighed in on all of this. And before you know it, uh, all of a sudden, the position had changed. And the prime minister's office said that uh, Katie Telford will be testifying. What was the NDP's role in all of this? How did we get here? Andrew McDougall is with us, Assistant Professor in Canadian Politics and Public Law, University of Toronto, and with us now. Andrew, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Always a pleasure to join, Scott. So what role did the NDP play here? Because it seemed that the Conservatives tabled this motion. It looked like the NDP were going to back it. And then uh, finally the Prime Minister's office announced that Katie Telford would be testifying. And then the next day, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh stands up and calls the Conservatives useless. So how did they, what role did the NDP play in any of this? And how did this even come to the point where all of a sudden now Katie Telford's going to testify? Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting. It's turning into kind of a, a sprawling story here, but this is mm. just another twist in this whole this whole thing. I mean, the NDP has got a really difficult position to play right now because they're the ones ultimately kind of keeping the Liberals in power with their confidence and supply agreement. So, you know, the one side is they manage to get, you know, so, some of the policies that they want. But on the other hand, they kind of wear whatever the Liberals are, you know, whatever scandal they're going through or whatever it is they're doing. So they've got to be seen as being doing something constructive here uh, to make sure that there's a little bit of a, a light between uh, them and the liberals. And the the way the NDP is positioning it is that they were the ones that ultimately pressured the liberals to get Katie Telford to uh, to testify, saying this is, is really is really for, you know, is really on them. Um, and I think, you know, it, it makes sense from their perspective that they would have to be able to to say that, look, you know, we're not the same thing as the liberals. We're working hard to get to the bottom of a, of a story that's obviously compelled Canadians. Do you find it surprising that both uh, the NDP and the Conservatives are taking credit for this? Because they, Pierre Polyever, said the same thing. Yeah, no, I think I think all the parties are doing exactly what political parties do is they're credit seeking, right? They're trying yeah. to demonstrate that they're the ones, they're the true opposition. They're the ones that are really holding the liberals to account. Uh, and, you know, it, both of them are going to have to find some kind of angle where they say that they're the actual pressure here. Uh, and I think there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of noise around that going forward. All right. Many have um, talked about the agreement between the NDP and the Liberals. And, you know, the Liberals seem to be getting all the credit for it, even though it's the NDP that are pushing forth these ideas. But it seems to be turning a little bit. At what point does this start to work for the NDP? I mean, does the timing have to be just right where they cut ties? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when they made this announcement that they were going to go ahead and do a confidence and supply agreement originally, I think it, it raised a lot of eyebrows. Just first of all, it's kind of unusual in the Canadian case, but it's a very tricky kind of thing to pull off in a in a parliamentary democracy because, you know, again, on the one hand, you do get an opportunity to say that you're you, even though you're in opposition, you're going to get some of the things that your supporters want. But once again, that's a double edged sword. As soon as anything, the government runs into any problems or you don't get what you want, you can 
be painted by parties like the conservatives saying, you're the ones that really keep the liberals in power. Aren't you really the same as the liberals? If you really want change, you're going to have to vote for us and the conservatives. So at some point along the way, the, you know, the NDP has to, you know, I mean, they are ultimately going to have to run against the liberals. So I'll be interested to see whether or not that really goes all the way to the end. I would, of the, uh, of the, the mandate, I would suspect, I don't know anything about this, but I would imagine they would be looking for an opportunity the closer the election gets to say, look, this is over. We're pulling the plug. This is a minority government. Uh, we're out. But, you know, that is the timing there is very, very tricky for the NDP. So they're going to be um, they're going to have a lot to think about as they go forward. Uh, many have said that the momentum favors the liberals. The agreement phase uh, favors the liberals. The longer this goes, does it become the opposite? It favors the NDP more. They look like the good guys um, because, again, you can sit there on the fence and point where, for everything bad to the government, everything good to yourself. Yeah, I mean, I think there's risks for both parties in this, right? I mean, and, and there's also some benefits. I mean, the liberals are getting some stability here. They're getting, uh, you know, they're they're in a position where they can get what they want through parliament a little bit easier. Um, but of course, you know, they are ultimately sort of hostages, sort of the NDP. And, and, you know, as we've already sort of said, the NDP has got its own sort of problems here. I think a story like this is is interesting because it you know, it, it, it makes managing this type of relationship very difficult because if the if the liberals take a huge hit to their popularity, that's going to reflect a little bit on the NDP that's that's, um, you know, that's propping them up. So I think it's kind of a day by day assessment for both parties on on the value of these sorts of agreements. What about within the liberal party itself on the leadership front? And is there a push to bring this party back to left of center as opposed to farther left? You're talking about the liberals. Correct. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the joke is always they kind of they run as the NDP and then they govern as the conservatives when they get in. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think the, the liberals are, you know, a very much a centrist, but to a degree center left party. And they've got, you know, different uh, voices within the party that always sort of contest whether or not they should be going a little bit further to the left or or not. So those sorts of discussions, I think, are pretty common for uh, for the liberals. The the NDP partnership, I think, gives a little bit of oxygen that for, to those that would like to see the party go a little bit farther left because they can say, look, if we don't, we're not we're gonna have to fight an election. And that's, you know, that's we don't want to do that right now. So it might help them sort of push in, in that direction. But there are other people in, in the Liberal Party that are much more central, uh, much more centrist that would resist that. So uh, this is this is a tension that always exists within the party. Uh, can Jugmeet Singh become prime minister or at least uh, in charge of the opposition, do you think? Well, I, I mean, we're still, at least for right now, we're still some ways away from an election. So it's really difficult this far out to make sort of an assessment mm. like that. I think you'd have to wait until we were closer to a campaign to start taking a look at where sort of the polls were and what the issues were to really make an assessment um, you know, with any kind of clarity on that one. But for right now, it looks like the, the agreement is stable uh, and it doesn't look like a, we're headed for an election, um, at least for right now. Andrew McDougall with us, Assistant Professor of Canadian Politics and Public Law, University of Toronto. Andrew, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks again, Scott. We've talked at length on this show about uh, uh, interference from the Chinese Communist Party in elections, medicine, education, whatever. Sam Cooper, a uh, great, great, phenomenal, one of the best in the country, investigative reporters for Global News. We're lucky to have him. Uh, Robert Fife out of the Globe and Mail, same thing. We've heard the stories of election interference. This is news that is just breaking. And Sam Cooper, uh, the headline is Liberal MP Han Dong 
secretly advised Chinese diplomat in 2021 to delay freeing the two Michaels. So this is the MP that has been on the news of late uh, saying that he's never done anything wrong. He's never taken any influence or money from the CCP. Um, and and this is racist and whatever. Uh, the article says liberal MP Han, Han Dung, who is the center of the Chinese influence allegations, privately advised a senior Chinese diplomat February 2021 that Beijing should hold off freeing Michael Kovrig and Michael Spaver, according to two separate national security sources. Both sources uh, say that Dong allegedly suggested that uh, to Chinese Consular General in Toronto that if Beijing released the two Michaels whom China accused of espionage, the opposition conservatives would benefit. Once again, Sam Cooper from Global News reporting, Liberal MP Han Dong secretly advised Chinese diplomat in 2021 to delay the freeing of the two Michaels as it would benefit the conservatives. After 24 hours of seeing this man on television, looking into the camera and saying that it is all lies, there's nothing to see here, he never took anything from the Chinese Communist Party, which of course has never been the allegation. It's all of these organizations between the two, whether it's Chinese police stations or the organizations that are trying to interfere in Canadian life. So we'll be following that story tomorrow, uh, obviously in great detail, but it's just breaking that the MP in Don Valley North uh, and it's interesting because the MPP, the conservative MPP, he stepped away. He's out of the conservatives until he's cleared. But this guy still stayed on as an MP, defending himself. And now new reports from Sam Cooper um, pinning him to the two Michaels, saying that he suggested that they keep them in because it would benefit the conservatives if they were released. My goodness. Uh, where do we go from here? All right, enough of that. Um, let's talk about Russia and China. The president's meeting uh, over the last couple of days, that is over. Uh, let's bring in Dr. Arne Kislenko, Margaret McMillan, Trinity One International Relations Program, Trinity College, uh, University of Toronto, and Department of History at Toronto Metropolitan University, and with us now. Arne, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, thank you, Scott. So your thoughts on this meeting between Russia and China's presidents, um, uh, they, they say a new world order and, and such. What are your thoughts on the fallout from this meeting? Any ideas? Sure. Uh, I mean, first and foremost, this was a big diplomatic boon for, for, for Putin. It, it, I think that's pretty obvious. This is pretty much his only friend out there now, or potential friend. Uh, and it comes, of course, closely on the heels of his indictment as a war criminal, in effect. So he needs all the friends he can get. Um, the problem is, is that he clearly emerges from this meeting as a, a very junior partner. This is not an equitable relationship. Um, even the promise of some of the, the economic deals for purchasing oil and gas and so on, they pretty much um, reflect the fact that China walks away from this with all sorts of goodies and very little payment. There's, there's very little guarantee of Chinese investment uh, the way that Russia needs it. Um, and there's nothing along the lines of what Putin really needs, which is a promise of military support of dedicated uh, weaponry. So this is on the one hand a good thing for him. On the other hand, it shows that he's a, a desperate and junior partner. 
Uh, and the other major takeaway for me is certainly that this is uh, a Xi's attempt, uh, China's premier's attempt, uh, to really flex a diplomatic muscle to look like he is an international broker of peace. There's, of course, big problems about his peace plan, but that's certainly his intention, and that's another big takeaway. Uh, and lastly, I would say, really, this isn't the kind of agreement at the end of the day that a lot of people you know, feared. This, this is a China that's far more receptive to Russia than everybody here in the West would like, that's for sure. They haven't condemned the invasion, for example, and they talk about a you know, lifelong friendship. But the reality is China has a lot of hesitation about Russia and is risking quite a lot. So there, there's a lot to be determined, and, and I don't think we're going to know how that plays out uh, uh, for quite a while yet, because I really don't think Xi knows exactly you know, how this is going to play out uh, in his own country's interests. Uh, we heard that there was no exchange of weaponry. There's no talk of weaponry. Do we believe that? Does it come in a back door some way? Uh, is it all just uh, China buying energy off of Russia? What about weapons? Well, that's that's an excellent point. And yeah, there there is a very good likelihood as China's weapons industries bl- blossom, and that has been ongoing now for, for many years, that there are secret avenues that it's getting in through through back doors or intermediaries, countries like Iran and so on, very possible. But we but we should point out that China has been quite hesitant, um, which is revealing, right? He's been quite hesitant to be, you know, uh, openly in support of of Russia, certainly militarily, but also in terms of its rhetoric. So it hasn't, you know, it it, it, it plays a very delicate diplomatic game here, uh, where it talks now principally about peace, and it hasn't made formal, obvious military agreements. So it is you know, becoming, it is already Russia's most important economic player, but it hasn't taken that additional step. And I, I think that reveals that China uh, understands. I'm, I, I'm not one to flatter China, believe me, um, but it, it's a little bit more sophisticated than we often give it credit for. It understands there's liabilities here uh, in terms of, of cementing a relationship with Russia and military equipment would do that. Overt military support would have consequences in terms of potential sanctions, economic, uh, you know, losses for China, and that's not in China's best interest. Um, uh, obviously, uh, Russia a shadow of its former self. At what point does Russia become a liability for China? What's that trigger? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. I mean, to some degree, I think it already is a liability uh, because there, there's two Chinas here in play, right? One that is decisively anti-Western and is trying to take its place at the at the head of a new international block. That's why Xi keeps talking about, you know, famously now, he said, we're, we're on the verge of changes that we haven't seen in 100 years, right? A kind of uh, romantic uh, idea of China leading a new world order. And he wants Russia as part of that, a junior partner in that relationship. So that's the one side. He wants China's place, as he sees rightfully on top of the world order, or or equal in the world order. The other part of China um, is nervous that this guy is, in effect, an albatross, that that Putin and Russia represent a real potential drain on Chinese economy. They also can um, undermine uh, Xi's attempt to to be an international broker of peace. I mean, we shouldn't forget the fact his his peace plan is a joke at this stage, absolutely, but he is trying to position himself as some sort of international power in that other respect, not just a military and economic force, but some sort of diplomatic alternative. And in that case, this war has gone really badly. Right? Had it been over in a month, 
uh, Xi probably would be, you know, happy to partner with Russia in a more emphatic fashion. But the fact that it's dragged out for a year represents all kinds of problems. I think behind the scenes, he's been quite critical of Russia's handling uh, of this war militarily in other respects. So the longer it goes, the more problematic his relationship becomes. And, and that's going to cost him in, in a lot of different respects. I uh, only got a few seconds left. So the peace, the, the peace plan is just all smoke and mirrors from China? For now, yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't address any substantial issues like the, the sovereignty of Ukraine uh, or the fact that Russian soldiers are still occupying parts of that country. None of that is in the cards. So it's not really a peace plan. It's a it's a, um, a kind of attempt to get Russia out of this uh, hmm. before it becomes an intractable conflict, which, frankly, I think it is. I don't, I don't think we're anywhere near a solution here in China's idea isn't isn't very good one at this stage dr arn kislenko with us margaret mcmillan trinity one international relations program at trinity college u of t and department of history at toronto metropolitan university arn as always thanks for the time be well thank you scott you too you're listening to the hamilton today podcast from 900 chml Obviously, Sam Cooper from Global News has been doing a tremendous amount of investigative reporting, great investigative reporting, along with Robert Fife from the Globe and Mail in regard to Chinese uh, interference in Canadian life, whether it's medicine, whether it's education, and most recently, election interference. Uh, there was two MP, an MP and an MPP in question, one a conservative, one a liberal. The conservative is out of the conservative party until his name is cleared. Uh, the liberal MP, Han Dong, is still uh, holding his seat and the, the prime minister actually said uh, last month that I want to make everyone fully uh, understand fully that Han Dong is an outstanding member of our team and suggestions that he is somehow not loyal to Canada should not be entertained. That's what the prime minister said. Sam Cooper said in a article just breaking now that liberal MP Han Dong, who is at the center of the Chinese influence allegations, privately advised a senior Chinese diplomat in February of 2021 that Beijing should hold off freeing Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavier, according to two separate national security sources. Both sources said that Dong allegedly suggested that the China's uh, China's consular general in Toronto, that if Beijing releases the two Michaels, whom China accused of espionage, the opposition conservatives would benefit. Of course, this is all in in result of uh, the Huawei uh, CFO being held and then the two Canadians taken as retribution, uh, obviously, in China. This is incredible. These are incredible allegations from Sam Cooper uh, that are part of the ongoing um, uh, ceases information that is slowly coming out. What is fascinating is this politician was on uh, on TV media last night uh, saying that this is all wrong this is all whatever how dare you even uh suggest this sort of thing and brought up racism again and here we are uh more proof from the same sources i'm guessing in ceases that are saying hey wait a sec this the the allegation is this mp was telling the consular not to release the two michaels because it would favor the conservatives 
I don't even have a reaction for this at that. I don't even have a reaction to all of this at this time. I, I just can't believe it. Well, I guess I can, but I'm lost for words. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Scott, what are your thoughts? When you see a guy on TV sit and scream that he's innocent and none of this is going on, I immediately think of the Vancouver mayor who, when he was accused of all of this, immediately went to the race card. Uh, the red flags go up, and now this this more information from Sam Cooper. Uh, when I saw this and heard this, honestly, um, it, it's like you. It's rare that, like, my jaw dropped because yeah. it's it like it, these allegations are like. Okay, here's the thing. I don't know what, if anything. Um, makes people f- decide how they're going to vote or who they're not going to vote for. Uh, you know, you and I have talked in the past that you would have thought that with certain politicians, blackface would have been a disqualifier or other things would have been a disqualifier. That clearly has not been the case in this country with this prime minister and this government. You wonder if this, if this is the thing that suddenly people say, okay, I can't do this anymore. Or do you continue to have people say, no, this is all made up and there's nothing here and this is just Sam Cooper trying to be, for some reason that doesn't make any sense, an arm of the <laughs> conservative party, which, you know, is like, doesn't, it's not even logical, but nonetheless. So I, I, I truly, I don't know what this does, but I suspect that there are an awful lot of people like you and like me who just are sitting here going, what? You know what I think we're learning from all of this? As Canadians, some are playing the race card against us because they know we're sensitive to it and we're good people and they know we'll recoil. What this says to me is the next time I hear a politician screaming racism instead of running and hiding or saying, I'm terribly sorry, I didn't mean to make such an allegation, I think we should stand up and look very deeper, much deeper into oh, the issue. Scott. Because this is being used by the Chinese Communist Party, racism, in order to deflect a proper investigation or inquiry. Okay, honestly, I'm so far past that. I mean, there there is real racism in our world, and there's not a single person who is going to suggest otherwise. But it seems as though, not just in this case, not just in politics, so often now that is the automatic landmine that you can lay down and know that no one wants to walk through that field because if they step on it, all of a sudden it's terrible for them. So this is, look, the racism, the accusations and default positions or defensive positions of racism, to me, too often they take away from the real problem with racism, which is something we really need to be concerned about and do better about. But when you literally litter the field with these landmines, it makes everything seem, and that's a bad example because, you know, landmines, but nonetheless, it makes everything seem like eventually it's the boy that cried wolf. And it becomes, it, it hurts the real causes of racism when there really is stuff that we have to deal with. Now, back to this one, though. I don't know. As I say, I, I'm just reading this story literally as you were on the air reading mm-hmm. it, and I pulled it up. And here's the big question, though. is it, it, Assuming this is the case, did the prime minister know anything about this? <laughs> no, no. I look, I, he doesn't know anything. No, but Scott, he doesn't know what color socks he's wearing. What did he know, and when did he know it? That's always the line you use for going will back the, to will Watergate. There, will there be an inquiry into that, too? Well, that that goes back to all kinds of political scandals, and really, that becomes 
a huge, enormous part of the story here. Now, I don't know that he did or did not know about this. This seems like something that perhaps wouldn't have been in his purview at all if this story, following this story. Um, but now, so Doug Ford took his minister who was, well, who had accusations and said, you know what, step off to the side till we sort this out. What are we going to see now as far as now? This is a real test. And both politicians, both politicians from the same riding, one provincial, Mm. one federal. So this is going to be a real test now, because if the prime minister doesn't do anything and it turns out that this is absolutely true. Now the prime minister has been inactive and blah, blah, blah. If he does something, he's going to feel perhaps like, well, I'm hanging my guy. This is, as I say, Scott, this is, this is a moment when your jaw sort of hits the floor and you go, wow, this is, Mm. this, this probably is a, uh, would you agree? This is now a full on crisis moment for the liberal government right now. Yeah, I would say so. I would say so. Yeah. the, The barn's on fire. All right. That's it. We're out of time, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This comes from Mike. Everyone saying how Russia is back into a corner and their world just got smaller. I don't understand how a blue-collar guy like myself knows about bricks. It's Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. They're a big partnership, and they're pretty much on the verge of the way our financial system is going, especially in the U.S., they're on the verge of controlling the planet. China just brokered a deal with Saudi Arabia and Iran to buy, to sell oil in the Chinese yuan, which is going to destroy the American dollar even more. 